Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. Peter, this week I think we should kick off by talking again about what's happening in the stock market, our, one of our, of course, major interests in life, both professionally and personally. And this has been a good week for the market again. We're getting quite a lot of strong momentum. Uh, the stock market is, is up again. Uh, it paused on Friday, but otherwise up this week. Uh, and it's notable that uh, the kind of things that you're doing well in the market now are very different from what they were uh, earlier. So we've seen if you like, the things that got hit most when the panic struck, uh, rising strongly since the last couple of weeks. We've seen oil is up 90%, Brazil up 30, 30%, US home builders 30%, even EU banks are up 26%, and small cap is doing very well as well. All of which suggests to me that we are beginning to see uh, a capitulation by the bears. Do you think that is possible? Morning, Jonathan. I think it is possible in a slow-moving way. I think you missed um, to mention something which no doubt you noticed, which I think is the most important of all, which is that the dollar is finally getting weaker. It's almost hitting 111 against the euro. We discussed that last week. I view that as the most important positive signal because it helps to inject liquidity, especially into the emerging markets. Um, I also noticed that the every day of this past week has been has morphed and has the sentiment has changed. At the beginning of the week, there were only bears, a lot of cash, and at the end of the week, as you say, the perma bears in the newspapers and the commentators were beginning to scratch their head. So I agree with you. Yes, so that is an interesting sign. And that, of course, is what often happens during these kind of market sell-offs. Uh, when things start to recover, there's a certain point people say, no, it can't be for real, it's a temporary thing. And then people suddenly start waking up and say, hey, I'm missing, I may be missing the bus here. Uh, I need to jump on board. So you're finding a lot of people who previously were quite negative uh, jumping on board. It doesn't mean necessarily they think that the, the, uh, the future is very bright, but they just can't afford to be so out of sync with the rest of the market. Is that, uh, is that your experience too? Completely my experience. But it nonetheless is always puzzling. You know, this morning I read quite a long article of, in the Wall Street Journal of, I think, yesterday, which described what happened about a week before the stock market hit the bottom, what happened in the money market funds. It's very technical, so we won't get into any detail how the money market funds completely seized up and how the Fed on a Sunday night announced extraordinary rate cuts. And that was taken very badly the next day, obviously, because when the Fed meets on a Sunday, they must know something that we don't. And the market took it very badly. But that was only a bit more than two months ago. When you think what's happened in those two months, it really is quite extraordinary how the mood has changed and how those parts of the market, which were early birds, have now been joined 
a little bit on the left, a little bit on the right, in front, behind, as you say, by other asset classes like banks and so on. So the sentiment is very much oriented now towards the idea that there will be or there is already in motion a V-shaped recovery, which would, of course, justify the huge bounce back, I call it a bull market, that we've experienced since the bottom at the end of, towards the end of March. Yes, I think that's very interesting. You know, I read that article too, and I thought that was fascinating. Um, because, of course, then what happened was, I remember watching the American business news channels that week, uh, and uh, one of the uh, candidates for being uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, who didn't get the job, he came on and he said, very interestingly, he said, well, the Fed has just got to do more. I mean, the point is, you've got to go on doing it until you actually convince the markets that that's what you're, that you're really serious about solving this problem. And eventually, that's what they did. Uh, they announced yet more kind of ac ac actions. Uh, and in due course, we got the bottom of the market about a week later, I think it was. So it was enough to, to say it was, a, it was straight out of the, um, the textbook that uh, Mr. Draghi had used to solve the euro crisis uh, a few years ago. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Uh, and in, boy, did they do that. Uh, of course, and what's so strange about it, what's interesting about it, I think, as well, is that if we look at where the markets are now, if we look at the... Uh, at the charts, at the technical analysis, what we call technical analysis, uh, it is interesting that the uh, the U.S. market, at least, has come back to hit its what we call the trend line, the 200-day moving average. It's just about it's just got to that point, and that's often a point where a lot of people follow, look at the market that way, rightly or wrongly, and so if they see that happening, it suggests that either we're going to, we're going to get quite a good signal now. If it goes through that and carries on going up, that will be pretty much confirmation that the bull market is back in back in flow. I don't know whether you look at technical analysis at all, Peter, but uh, it does, does give you an extra uh, window into what people are actually doing as it measures supply and demand, essentially. Yes, well, chartists do tend to get it right very often. Um, so I do do a bit of technical analysis, but not very much of it, and only from time to time. Um, I think that if we rise above all this, there is, of course, a very sad element to all this, because if you look at the difference between, let's just call it Wall Street and Main Street. What's going on in Main Street, particularly at the consumer level, uh, and particularly for young people, it's really very sad. Unemployment has rocketed up as young people now can't find jobs. Companies are going bankrupt. It is very distressing, all this. But of course, the question is now whether this, what's happening in the stock markets could produce a positive feedback loop and encourage the consumer to go out and spend, encourage those who hand out jobs to do so, encourage capital expenditure to be incurred. I'm a great believer, I don't know about you, Jonathan, in the theory of reflexivity, which a very well-known world gambler introduced uh, 30 years ago, but actually when you think about it, it's fairly obvious. If your portfolio is high, uh, it spurs you to spending more money and vice versa. But that could very well happen. In fact, if you ask me, Jonathan, it is happening right now. And do you remember 
that couple that has been completely in the background in the last few months, in these dreadful months, Tina and FOMO. Well, Tina, who was in a lockdown herself, uh, is back, and she's back with a vengeance. Better explain what Tina stands for, Peter. I think I know what it stands for. It was immortalized by our former Prime Minister, Mrs. Thatcher, at one point, but uh, perhaps you should just tell us what uh, Tina stands for. I'll tell you what Tina stands for, and then I'll tell you what FOMO stands for. Tina is spelled T-I-N-A, and means there is no alternative. And Tina's been around for a long time, so she's no young damsel. She's been around for a long time because the idea of there being no alternative is closely linked with the fact that fixed income yields are so low that if you want to make money, you've got to go into shares. There's no alternative. And then there's Tina's companion, who's called FOMO. And FOMO, in a way, strengthens Tina. And FOMO stands for fear of missing out. And when the two of them combine, they're a very, very powerful effect on capital markets. And I see them back. In fact, you wouldn't be surprised from me, Jonathan. I welcome them back. I'm not surprised by that at all. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, reflexivity and the, which I guess we could sort of shorthand description would be positive feedback. In other words, as you said, when good things happen, more good things tend to happen. Uh, I've always been struck by uh, George Soros, who I think is a, the investor you're referring to. He, uh, he's made a lot of money by being, uh, you know, by doing the opposite of what other people have been doing some of the time when he has made money. But I've always been struck by the fact that he, he said that when he was doing that as a contrarian investor, he used to get terrible backache every time he was faced with one of these tough decisions. Uh, so he, he didn't. He realised it would be a good decision only if he got terrible backache because it was so obviously kind of appeared to be crazy and uh, <laughs> a mad thing to do. And I think we all feel that a little bit. It's one thing to say I'm a contrarian investor, but actually it's incredibly difficult to do that. Much easier to do what we're talking about now, which is to uh, essentially kind of follow the herd in one way or another by by, by doing what uh, everyone else seems to be doing. And that seems to be a strong characteristic of the stock market. I just want to bring you one point there. I mean, how can it be? The question we've talked about, skirted round perhaps before, is, okay, so we're going to get perhaps a bull market will carry on. But as you say, there's a big difference with what's going on in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the world at large. The stock market is a pretty unemotional place uh, in the sense that where it goes is not driven by, uh, uh, is not driven by concern for others. Let's put it that way. It's not altruistic. Um, and of course, you know, 90% of the people affected by the coronavirus, are, it turns out the ones who die are over 65 or have got bad health. So they are often economically inactive, effectively. So, you know, but can the world actually go back to the way it was? I mean, could the market go back to where it was before this all happened? Given, as you say, we've lost a lot of companies or we're losing companies to bankruptcy. A lot of people have had to take out loans. They don't know how they're going to repay. Some businesses are struggling. You know, how can, how can that possibly happen? You've said a lot of things there, all of them very interesting. May I just mention that in my case, it's the pain is in the stomach, not in the back. Right. And I've had a few stomach pains in the last couple of months, and they turned out to be um, good pains. But I, 
I think there's no question, I think everyone agrees that the way the economy will develop will be quite different from the way it has been developing until the outset of this of this crisis, whether it's the way consumers consume, through which channels do they buy, what do they avoid doing, what will they continue to do. Then there's a very, very important question of unemployment, which is so high that if it doesn't come back pretty soon, that could also produce more of a lukewarm recovery. After all, the consumer, and I think it doesn't matter whether it's in the States or in Europe or elsewhere, constitutes a very big part of the economy, something like two-thirds. If the consumer can only consume with one hand tied behind his back, then, of course, it's going to be lukewarm. But I believe that the glass, the glass is half full, and I also believe that nature takes care of itself, and that includes the economy. And I think that it is going to morph into a new model. I can't yet tell you exactly how. I don't think anyone can, which will be positive, which will mean growth is going to come back. So to answer your question, not only do I think the stock markets could reach their old level, but actually they're not that far removed from their old level right now. So it wouldn't take a complete leap of faith to see them back up there. But we can, when we have our conversation in about a year's time, we will then be able to ascertain how that patterns uh, within the economy have changed. We just need to wait. We can't tell that yet. Well, it's interesting. This week, I went down to uh, I went down to one of the local shops, which is uh, which is uh, no, it's not open. It's a flower shop. I wanted to get some flowers, and uh, but I, I uh, went to their website, and they said we are now being allowed to be back in business, but we can't actually open the shop. But if you you know, if you come around the back where our warehouse is, you can get some flowers. So I went around and did that. And the, the, the couple who run that shop, they've been running it for 25, 30 years now, uh, they said they've never been busier than they are now. Because even though the shop itself is not open, the kind of business they're doing online is, is, is absolutely rocketing. They can't keep up with demand. Because I think people are already starting, you know, the, the, the end of the lockdown, people are already starting to... Uh, if you like, try and catch up. They're having, you know, this, all those weddings that were cancelled, all those parties that were cancelled. They're not going to go ahead in the same format, but they're still going to create demand in different ways. And I guess the hope is that that is rather what you're talking about uh, when it comes to the economy. We just don't know how it's going to adapt. But and what we about? Can't see it. I would call it the invisible part of the economy. Indeed. Like, you know, like your florist. Indeed, thank you. And uh, but what about the debt that we've accumulated? This, you know, comes back to another topic we've talked about: what's happening in the debt markets. Uh, do you think that if we get the kind of recovery that you're talking about, that we will see interest rates start to go up again? Is that is that possible? Um, it's possible, but it's not likely, and it's certainly very unlikely for interest rates to be driven up because of a recurring inflation. That, for me, is totally out of the question. Uh, we've discussed this in the past and we will in the future, but I would place a large bet on the fact that inflation is a thing of the past. And as we've discussed before,
people of your generation and mine, we knew inflation. The young people don't know inflation and they don't know how to look after their money in inflationary times. But I just don't see that happening um, for the moment. So as to your question on debts, which we've also discussed before, I'm beginning to think more and more as I see new debt being incurred, particularly sovereign debt, which is of much longer maturities than was hitherto the case. I think that the debts are not going to be repaid. They're going to be perpetualized bit by bit at a, at a very low uh, interest rate. And that's going to go on far over the horizon. Even Mr. Draghi has more or less said that now that he talks a little bit more freely. He says, borrow, 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 spend, spend, spend. Now, personally, I'm not of that school. But <laughs> it's good to say that's the sort of, <laughs> that's the not the kind of message you normally hear from central bankers. That doesn't sound uh, uh, it's uh, quite a, be quite striking if if that is indeed the case and what happens, which I suspect, of course, it might be. Well, do carry on, Peter. Yeah, it's interesting. Where where is that going to take us? Well, I remind we must remind ourselves that Draghi is not a central banker. He's a former central banker, and like all these people, once they've left office, they start singing like canaries. And I think that's what he's been doing. Uh, you can also see this extension of debt maturities at a corporate level. You know, before, when you looked at the balance sheet of the company and you saw that, yes, it had debt, but it was a short-term debt, uh, that was considered positive. Today, it's considered negative. Because if a company has short-term debt, which is due in a year, let's say, when it comes to refinancing that debt, they won't be able to because there'll be a sort of lingering credit squeeze. And I think that this spirit prevails both in the corporate debt market and in the sovereign debt market. And so I think longer debts potentially perpetualized at low rates of interest and repaying these debts is either not on the agenda or very low on the agenda. And that that will be accepted by both borrowers and lenders. So what you're saying, that's very interesting, is one of, because there's always been two schools of thought on this, is that one way we'll deal with the debt is that we will allow inflation to rise and that will just reduce the the, uh, the real value of those debts and eventually, therefore, they can be affordable. Uh, or you're going to be perpetualized, which is, I guess, a little bit what happened in the 19th century, where they had very you know, long, a long period of, of price stability and nobody was worried about inflation because they didn't, never saw it. And so they were quite happy to issue perpetual bonds and so on for a long time. So that, you think, is a more likely outcome than, uh, than uh, inflating it away? It, it is, yes, I totally agree. And it is linked to the fact that people of our generation who are more concerned with inflation, because we live through it, we work through it, we manage money through it, we forget that inflation was actually the exception and that noflation was the rule. And you've just said so yourself in the 19th century. You can look at that. The period from after the war, the, um, after the Second World War, there was inflation, or during the war, there was inflation. Then it calmed down. Then there was the first oil shock. Then there was the second oil shock. And interest rates went up to 20%. And everyone said, this is never going to go away, this problem. And then it was attacked properly. And so ever since 1982, approximately, we've had falling interest rates all the way down to zero. And for the last 15 years or so, we have had 
no inflation. We, we verged on deflation because the pricing power has moved from the producer, who used to command his own prices and, and raise them all the time, to the consumer who won't accept rising prices. So I think that that is very much the, the continuing norm. Well, let's hope you're right about that, Peter. Uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, I must say this uh, out of um, duty, uh, that some countries are rather less effective at uh, controlling inflation than others. And uh, unfortunately, I live in one of them. We tend to, in the UK, we tend to have a relatively high inflation rate. We have been as high as 5% uh, in the last few years. Obviously, that's partly to do with the fact that our currency is so weak. I mean, it might be a good pretext for us to quickly touch on a subject we haven't mentioned for quite a while, which is the dreaded word Brexit. I mean, it's actually come back. I actually saw it on the front page of a newspaper the other day. It was the first time that there has been something about uh, that isn't about the virus on the front page, more or less. Uh, and so Brexit is coming back. And the reason for that is that while everybody's been preoccupied with the pandemic, the... Uh, <laughs> The, the clock has been ticking on the uh, on the negotiations or lack of negotiations that there have been uh, on Bre the terms of Brexit, which is due to happen at the end of this year. And there's a very big, uh, important uh, deadline coming up in June. Uh, and I wonder where, I'll start by asking you where you think that the, the negotiations are and what you think uh, might be panning out over the next few weeks. If you'd like to hear the rest of the discussion around Brexit, then head to part two of this episode. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice. Thank you.